Hi everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors at HMCC of Jakarta and it's my privilege to preach the Word of God to us today. So today we're starting a new two-part sermon series called Worship. So in the first part, we'll give an overview of worship, that's today, and then next week we'll look specifically at corporate worship. So let's get right into it. Let me ask a question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? What comes to mind when you hear the word worship? When I did a Google image search of worship, all I saw were pictures of bands on stage, dark rooms, bright lights, hands raised, people closing their eyes. And now, is that what comes to mind for you when you hear the word worship? You know, for many of us, I think we inherently know that worship entails so much more than that. But then how we refer to worship often comes down to just those Google image searches. How many of us have said or heard someone say something like, will there be worship at that gathering? Ben is doing the worship today. With only 10 minutes, we really didn't have time to worship. By the last song, I was really worshiping. So what's often meant by worship is a time of singing, a band, or some kind of experience. But is that really what worship is? And more importantly, is that what Christian worship really is? And if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't even consider yourself religious in any way. Does worship have anything to do with you? These are some of the questions that we're going to be addressing uh, today. So the one thing for today is Christian worship is seeing and responding to the worthiness of God in Christ. Christian worship is seeing and responding to the worthiness of God in Christ. So each week we usually preach expositional sermons through one passage of scripture, but today we're going to take a different approach and we're going to look at various passages to address uh, different issues related to this topic of worship. We're going to look at worship in three parts. First, what is worship? Second, what is Christian worship? And then third, how should we worship God as Christians? So first, what is worship? Uh, the best and simplest definition I've heard for what worship is in general is that worship is our response to what we value most. Worship is our response to what we value most. Another way of saying that is whatever is worth most to you is what you worship. Uh, one author says, what you worship is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So that could be money, beauty, power, intellect, security, status, approval, pleasure, people, or, or something else. And understanding worship like this, you could say that all a human being ever does is worship. Because we're all living for something, and we're all driven by something. All of our thoughts, desires, choices, actions, words are all responses to what we value most. We were made to worship God, to find our identity, meaning, purpose, and well-being in Him. But if we don't worship God, it doesn't mean that we don't worship anything at all. We were designed for worship. So we're always seeking to attach our identity, meaning, purpose, and well-being to something. And this isn't just a biblical principle, but this has been observed even by the irreligious, people who wouldn't say that they are religious in any way. You know, David Foster Wallace, an American writer, at a commencement speech he gave at Kenyon College, he said this, 
And I feel like we can all resonate with this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. They are default settings, meaning they're hardwired in us. We're built this way. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. In other words, whether we realize it or not, we're always worshiping something. And what we worship eventually masters us. It owns us. So, who's your master? What owns you? Let's take a moment to just honestly assess ourselves. When you take an inventory of your time, affection, energy, money, and thoughts, what does it reveal about what you worship? What is it that you attach your identity, meaning, purpose, and well-being to? What is it that if it were taken away, you'd feel like your life would completely fall apart? If you're a parent... Maybe you worship your kids. If you're single, maybe you worship a certain relationship. If you're working like crazy, maybe you worship financial security or a certain level of perceived success or self-actualizing your own potential. You know, whatever it is that we may worship, if it's not God, the Bible calls it an idol. An idol, a counterfeit God. And idols will always betray us. They never give us the life that they promise. Just think about what stresses you out uh, and causes you the most anxiety. It's probably something related to an idol. Idols are like kidnappers who will gladly give you chocolate after chocolate if it will move you closer and closer towards enslavement. Many of the idols that enslave you now probably brought you great joy at one point. But those joys never last you always eventually find yourself in a pit of stress stress and anxiety and despair. The sad irony is that we think that we can have life in these idols, but the reality is that they end up stealing life from us. The sad irony is that we think that our lives would be crushed if we don't have these idols, but the reality is that if we have all these idols but don't have God, we would actually be crushed. And we would have no life. You know, who made the heavens and the earth and made each and every one of us? Who sustains our every breath and every heartbeat? Who gives us our resources, skills, talents, and experiences? Who judges whether we live or die? Who determines where we spend our eternity? Without God, we have nothing and we are nothing. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. All of creation worships God, but we somehow 
end up worshiping things in creation rather than our creator. We make things, we value ultimate things, and we make the God of ultimate value just another thing. And from God's perspective, that's soul foolish. In Isaiah 44, God describes a man who plants a tree which God nourishes with rain. The man later cuts down the tree for wood and he burns half the wood to make a fire to warm himself and cook his food. And then he uses the other half of the wood to make an idol for himself to worship, saying, deliver me for you are my God. And God, who created and provided for that man, who nourished that tree, is just flabbergasted. He's completely shocked that that man would then turn around and worship that block of wood rather than his creator and provider. Listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 19. God says this, No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? You know, how many of us are attaching our identity, meaning, purpose, and well-being to our own blocks of wood? In God's eyes, it makes no difference if it's a physical idol or a heart idol. If we're worshiping anything else in creation besides our creator and provider, it's just as foolish as if we were worshiping a block of wood. So first, what is worship? And second, What is Christian worship? If worship in general is our response to what we value most, then Christian worship is seeing and responding to the worthiness or the value of God in Christ. The word worship actually comes from an old English word meaning worth-ship. So one author describes true worship as seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. In any discussion about Christian worship, we have to look at John chapter 4, where in the middle of a conversation with a Samaritan woman uh, at a well, Jesus himself tells us what it means to worship God in light of who he is. So John chapter 4, verses 21 to 24. Jesus said to, to her, the Samaritan woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, From here, we're going to look at three principles about the nature of Christian worship. The first principle of Christian worship is that it is God-centered. God-centered. There is always an object to our worship. And for Christian worship, the object of worship must be God. Here, Jesus talks about worshiping God the Father. You know, that might sound obvious, that God is the object of our worship. But as we've seen in in ourselves already, even in the first part, how prone we are to worship things in creation rather than our creator. And even as we think about how Christians talk about worship, it's often talked about in terms of 
a time of singing, a band, some kind of experience, but not so much in terms of God being the object of our worship. So let's go back to some of those common comments that we've heard before and think about how we might uh, reply uh, hypothetically with a God-centered perspective of worship. So will there be worship at that gathering? Yes, there will definitely be worship. But the real question is, who and what will we be worshiping? Ben is doing the worship today. Well, I'm glad Ben will be worshiping God, but I hope everybody else will join in worshiping God too. With only 10 minutes, we really didn't have time to worship. Why do we need to warm up to worship God when he's always worthy of our worship? By the last song, I was really worshiping. Then who or what were you worshiping before the last song? You know, Christian worship is not singing songs in a vacuum, but it's seeing and responding to the worthiness of God in Christ. Christian worship is also not just some musical experience that you have. You know, how many of us get chills down our back when we hear an amazing singer on a, on a singing show like The Voice? Or when we hear an amazing orchestra or band? Or when we hear Whitney Houston hit that high note after the key change in I Will Always Love You? You know, I can assure you that just because you get chills down your back, and you're having some sort of musical or even mystical experience when you hear these songs, that doesn't mean that you're worshiping God. You may be listening to a biblically sound sermon. You may be singing, holy, holy, holy. You may be listening to someone pray a very heartfelt prayer. You might be exercising your gifts to serve others. You may even be giving up your life for someone. But in all these things, if you're not focusing on and responding to God as the object of your worship, then there's no doubt that you're worshiping someone or something. But it's not God. But how do we know that we're worshiping the one true God? Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. He also says that true worshipers will worship God the Father in truth. That gets into our second principle. Christian worship must be Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth that God has revealed. And Jesus is the only way by which we can truly worship God. Also, whenever John, the writer of this gospel account, uh, uses the phrase, in truth, He uses it to refer to the truth of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So to worship God in truth and to worship God in Christ can be understood as synonyms. They mean the same thing. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. Christ perfectly reveals who God is. In other words, when we see Christ, we see God. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, for he and the Father are one. So God-centered worship must be Christ-centered worship. But Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here for this kind of worship, which means that something has changed 
in the way that God's people now worship compared to how they worshipped in the past. And whenever Jesus referred to the hour or my hour, he, referred to, he was referring to his death and resurrection. So prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, true worship took place in Jerusalem, in the temple, where God's presence dwelled in a special way, through animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, and through a priest as mediator between a sinful people and a holy God. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, true worship now takes place in Christ who himself is the perfect temple, the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect high priest on our behalf. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, worship has radically changed. There is no longer a need for a temple, a sacrifice, or a priest because we have all of those things in Christ. So we now worship the one true God by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Christian worship is seeing and responding to the worthiness of God in Christ. We see God revealed in Christ, and we worship God by faith in Christ. But then, how do we get to know Christ? We get to know Christ through God's Word, through Scripture. In fact, Jesus is the Word of God. And Scripture itself attests that all of God's Word is ultimately ultimately about Jesus. But how are we enabled to see and treasure Christ through God's Word? That gets to our third principle. Christian worship is Spirit-enabled. Spirit-enabled. So God is revealed in Christ. Christ is revealed in God's Word. But only the Holy Spirit can enable us to see and treasure Christ through God's word. Jesus says that true worshipers will worship God not only in truth or in Christ, but also in spirit. To worship in spirit means to worship by the spirit of God. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3 says this, For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. God's word says that we were all once spiritually dead and blinded from being able to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We were once incapable of seeing and treasuring Christ through God's word. But throughout John's gospel account, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth and the one who will bear witness about Jesus So unless the Holy Spirit makes us spiritually alive and opens our spiritual eyes to see and treasure Christ through God's word, we cannot genuinely confess faith in Jesus. We will not, we don't want to confess faith in Jesus. And so we cannot truly worship God in Christ without the Holy Spirit enabling us to do so. But if we are genuine believers of Jesus Christ, That's only because the Holy Spirit has enabled us to see and treasure the worthiness of God in Christ. And the Holy Spirit will continue to bear witness about Jesus to us through God's word to fuel our worship of him. And so both our salvation and our worship are ultimately by God's grace. When it comes to our salvation, the Father sends, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies that salvation to us. And when it comes to our worship, true worshipers worship the Father through the Son by 
the Holy Spirit. Christian worship is God-centered, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled. To God be all the glory. So first, what is worship? Second, what is Christian worship? And third, how should we worship God as Christians? First, we worship God with our hearts. With our hearts. Quoting scripture, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So there is a way to worship God that Jesus describes as vain or empty worship. It looks like worship as praises to God are on people's lips. But it's only an empty shell of worship because their hearts are far from God. God is after our hearts in worship. He's not after how loud we sing, how long we pray, how much we cry, or how much we serve. But He's ultimately after our hearts. Paul Tripp, author of the article, Grace Gives Us a New Way to Live, he writes this, The Bible uses many terms for the inner, spiritual, thoughtful, desiring, motivational you. But all those terms are gathered together and summarized by one big collective term, heart. The heart is the causal core of your personhood. It's the seat of your thoughts, emotions, desires, and motivations. It is the worship center of yourself. The heart is the reason you do the things you do and say the things you say. You and I literally live out of our hearts. In other words, our hearts determine what we value most. And if worship is our response to what we value most, then God wants our worship to come out of our hearts that value Him above everything else. God wants us to see how much Christ is worth so that He becomes what we value most. And when Christ becomes the one whom we find our identity, meaning, purpose, and well-being, we cannot help but to respond with a heart that says with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the kind of heart that God is after in our worship. A heart that is fully satisfied in Him. A heart that says, if I have nothing and I have no one else but Christ, I still have more than enough. So we worship God with our hearts. And second, we worship God with our whole lives. With our whole lives. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says this, Therefore I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Uh, In Old Testament worship, God's people would come to present sacrifices to God uh, as part of their worship. There were sacrifices of atonement for the forgiveness of sins, but there were also sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. Now with Christ as our perfect and final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we no longer have any need for sacrifices to make atonement. 
But now, in view of God's mercy towards us in Christ, we continually offer our bodies as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. And this is not just our lips or our hands, but we offer our whole bodies, our whole lives. And this is often referred to as all of life worship. So what does all of life worship look like? The next verse tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So all of worship, all of life worship, does not look like a life conformed to the pattern of this world. But it looks like a life transformed by the renewing of our minds. And what are our minds renewed by? It's by God's Word. And God's Word is not just meant to renew our minds, but it's very clear that our renewed mind should work its way out into transformed lives. We're not just meant to know God's Word, but we're meant to test and approve what God's will, what God's will is, which is found in God's Word. We're meant to live a life of obedience to God's Word. But again, this life of obedience is not to make atonement for our sins. We already have that in Christ. Rather, this life of obedience is to be our continual living sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise to our God in response to the unfathomable, unfathomable mercy He's shown us in Christ. You know, all of life worship can obviously look very different uh, in everyone's life. But let me just share a few examples from my own life, and you can just contextualize uh, what it might look like in your own life. There are three things I do every morning uh, when I wake up. I make coffee, I read the Bible, and I pray. My son knows that this is a set-apart time with God that I have and that he should do his best not to disturb me. Of course, that's not always the case, but he knows that there's something special about this time compared to any other time of the day. In essence, I set apart the first hour of my morning as holy or devoted to the Lord. That doesn't mean that the rest of my day isn't devoted to the Lord, uh, but setting apart a portion of my day as holy reminds me that the whole of my day should be holy and pleasing to God. And this is actually a principle that we see throughout Scripture. We set apart a tithe or a tenth of our income to God as a reminder that all that we have belongs to God. We set apart one day a week as holy to the Lord to worship God with His people as a reminder that every day of the week should be lived as holy and pleasing to the Lord and as conscious worship to God. And so I've set apart a portion of my mornings as holy as I spend time with God in the Word and prayer in order to be conscious of worshiping God throughout the day. Uh, These days, I always close my time of prayer with the Lord's Prayer and some gospel truths that I just need to remember throughout the day. So I pray something like like this. God, my identity is not in how competent I am. It's not in how productive I am. It's not in what I think of myself, and it's not in what others think of me. But my identity is forever secure in Christ. God, help me to rest in who I am in Christ and not in what I do. And may all that I do today be an expression of worship to you. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I need to 
consciously renew my mind with those gospel truths because I'm so prone to forget them otherwise throughout the day. Also, before the pandemic, uh, every day when I came home from work, I would stand in front of our front door of our apartment, and before I'd open it, I'd lift up a short prayer. God, help me to love and serve my family the way that you have loved and served me in Christ. Just very brief, a few seconds, and then I walk through the door. So why did I do that? Because I'm so tired when I come home from work. And the last thing I want to do is serve. I want to be selfish. I feel like I don't have much to give. So I ask God to help me to love and serve by giving me the strength and by fixing my eyes on Christ. You know, one truth that constantly is renewing my mind is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 to 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, following Christ is full of these biblical paradoxes. But these are truths that we need to renew our minds with because they're not what the world says and they're definitely not what our flesh says. And these are truths that we need to test and approve in our lives. We need to live these truths out. So when I come home from work, my flesh says the most satisfying thing you can do right now is be selfish. Just lie down on the couch, just turn on the TV, just do what you want. But Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. Lose your life and you will find it. And so I play with my kids. Even when I feel like I don't have enough energy to even sit up, I pick up individual grains of rice from the ground that my kids spilled while eating dinner. I wash dishes even though that's my least favorite chore to do. I manually clean up poop in the bathtub after one of my kids poops while bathing. It feels like dying in the moment. But do you know what happens? I find life. I enjoy spending time with my family and they enjoy spending time with me. Now, do you know what would happen if I did not follow Christ in those moments and I just decided to be selfish? I would have a terrible marriage and I would have a terrible relationship with my kids. And when my kids grow up, the only reason they'd ever spend time with me is because they would feel obligated to as family, not because they actually enjoy spending time with me. You know, why would they enjoy spending time with a father who was always too busy or too tired to play with them and who always saw them as just interruptions and irritations to whatever else he was working on or whatever else he was doing in his own life? You want to find life? Then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. There's no followership of Christ without a cross. You must lose your life to save it. You know, that biblical truth has renewed my mind more and more over the years. It's informed my understanding of what it truly means to follow Christ. It's not always easy but I've tested and approved it a thousand times over in my life. And I can attest that it is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what about you? What does all of life worship look like for you in your everyday? What do you do to remind yourself to be consciously worshiping God throughout the day? What context do you find yourself in where it's so easy to be selfish and fleshly? 
And what biblical truths can you meditate on to renew your mind and transform your life as you test and approve them? You know, all of life worship is not automatic, but we ourselves must offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Nobody else can offer our bodies for us. Nobody else can worship God for us. We worship God with our hearts and with our whole lives. Worship is seeing and responding, being and doing. You cannot have one without the other. But at this point, I just need to address some of us who might feel like you're being a hypocrite. Or perhaps others are accusing you of being a hypocrite because you're struggling to worship God with your heart and with your whole life. You know, you sing the songs, but your heart is not focused on God. So you think, why bother even singing at all? You serve others, but you know that in your heart you're still selfish and you feel like you're just faking it. So let me clarify what it means to be a hypocrite. Being a hypocrite does not mean that you say one thing and then you do another. Every single one of us has done that because we live as sinners in a fallen world. Even the Apostle Paul says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We all struggle to always do what we say. So that's not what it means to be a hypocrite. The word hypocrite literally means actor, like an actor in a play. It's a person who intentionally plays a role. In the Gospels, only Jesus uses the word hypocrite, and he never uses it to describe notoriously sinful people like tax collectors or prostitutes. Rather, he only uses the word hypocrite to describe the religious teachers like the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them actors, people who are pretending to be something before others that they know they are not before God. But there's a world of difference between acting and struggling, playing a role and fighting to worship. When you struggle to focus on God when you're singing, you don't stop singing because you feel like you're being hypocritical. No, you keep singing and you meditate on what you're singing about and allow those truths to sink deep into your heart so that you could then respond in true worship of God. You fight to worship. When you struggle with selfishness as you serve others and you feel like you're just faking it, you don't stop serving. No, you keep serving as a way to help you pull away from focusing on yourself and push you towards focusing on God and others that he's placed before you. How else are you going to fight your selfishness? You're not playing a role. You're fighting to worship. Remember, we don't worship God with any perfect worship of our own but we worship God by faith in Christ as the only one who makes our worship acceptable and pleasing to God. And we trust that the Holy Spirit is enabling us to see and treasure the worthiness of God in Christ more and more as we continue to fight to worship God with our hearts and with our whole lives. So we worship God with our hearts and with our whole lives. And lastly, we worship God with God's people, with God's people. We're going to look more extensively at this next week, but we just cannot give an overview of worship without mentioning this. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, the apostle Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 people came to trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior and got baptized, what happens? 
Do they all disperse and go their own separate ways and then just to individually in isolation worship God on their own with their hearts and whole lives? Not at all. Pretty much the complete opposite happens. Acts chapter 2 verses 44 to 47 says this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God's people have always worshipped God together with other believers. They lived life closely with one another. They knew each other. They sacrificed and gave for each other. And what was the result of them worshiping God together like this? They were spurred on to worship God all the more. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Christian worship has always been communal worship, which is what we're going to look at next week much more. Uh, So here's a life application. First, take inventory of your time, affection, energy, money, and thoughts to see what it reveals about what or who you worship. You know, worship is not ultimately about what or who we say we worship, but it's about the response of our whole lives to what we value most. So what does your life reveal about who or what you're worshiping? Second, Read and discuss the Bible with someone else so that you, he, or she may come to see and respond to the worthiness of God in Christ. You know, God is revealed in Christ. Christ is revealed in God's word. And the Holy Spirit enables us to see and treasure Christ in God's word. But for us, we must position ourselves under God's word. I've been encouraged to hear that many of us have been doing just that at the start of 2021. And I want to encourage us to continue or start reading and discussing the Bible with others inside and outside of our church. Without being in God's word regularly, our seeing and treasuring of Christ diminishes. And so our worship also diminishes. So let's help one another continue to see and respond to the worthiness of God in Christ by getting into God's word together. And third, uh, reflect on the following questions. You know, what does all of life worship look like for you in your everyday What do you do to remind yourself to be consciously worshiping God throughout the day? What context do you find yourself in where it's so easy to be selfish and fleshly? And what biblical truths can you meditate on to renew your mind and transform your life as you test and approve them? And for us, as a church, in view of God's mercy towards us in Christ, let's continue to grow in offering ourselves in response to Him. This is our true and proper worship. May we never remain stagnant in our worship of God, but as a church, until Christ returns or calls us home, may we continue to help one another to grow in seeing and responding to the worthiness of God in Christ. So once again, the one thing is Christian worship is seeing and responding to the worthiness of God in Christ. Let's take some time now to respond to God's word.